Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, well, I mean, the two of them are such good foils. I mean, we know they love a good foil relationship. Oh, yeah, I love how much they're leaning into this. Especially with foils. That's a fencing joke. They're foils All with right. foils. <laughs> Phoebe's already making the next poll. <laughs> Is this cyberbullying? Um... <laughs> everybody and welcome back to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And I'm Emily, a classic scholar-ish. And today we are discussing episode 6 of the Percy Jackson and the Olympians TV series, We Take a Zebra to Vegas. There's no zebra though. I didn't see a zebra. There is a zebra for like half a second. Okay. <laughs> Okay. It's really, it's it's not the focal point of that moment at all. It's mm-hmm. like barely there. <laughs> Before we dive in, also, we just want to give a quick spoiler warning. We are operating under the assumption that you have kept up with our podcast, meaning that you have now read through all of the Trials of Apollo books. And in particular, we will almost definitely be spoiling at least the ending of The Lightning Thief, um, as per usual. Are we ready to go? Yes. We open. Do you think you're special, Lightning on... Thief? <laughs> Over blackness. This is the show's version of my favorite dream from the series, where Percy wills himself to the edge of the pit and eavesdrops on Kronos and the thief. And that first line that you just said is something we've heard almost word for word before from Clarice in episode two. Mm. I almost want to describe the majority of this dream before getting into it just because it's, there's a lot. So just to summarize a little further, we get a shot of the headmaster of Yancey Academy from episode one staring us down we're in first person so kind of in we are the lightning thief Mm -hmm. and he continues i'll just read his full quote he says do you think you cannot be replaced i gave you the tools to steal the master bolt only to watch it taken from you that mistake has been corrected but there's too much at stake for you to fail me again the war ahead of us the war beyond zeus and poseidon's war give me reason to question your worthiness again and there is another that just might be ready to take your place and then there's a look to Percy, and he says, Isn't that right, little hero? Not time for us to meet quite yet. Run along now and show me what you are capable of. That's also in the camera shifts, too. That's when we're stopping in first person in the Lightning Thief's perspective and are in third person in Percy's perspective, looking basically in the doorway, only seeing the principal. 
<laughs> I think the first line. I mean, good place to start. Yeah, because you've been flagging uses of the word special in this series so far. Mm-hmm. It immediately invokes Clarice because this is a line that Clarice has had. And since we're assuming at this point, as we learn in this episode, that Clarice is the lightning thief, asks you to question, like, does Clarice think she's special? But also, looking at it as us, makes you wonder, does Luke think he's special? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes, I, think, I mean, <laughs> going off of everything we've been talking about, yes. And I think that is the big difference between him and Percy that's being drawn here. Mm-hmm. Because Percy's answer to this question from Clarice was no. Yeah. No, I don't. Even, no matter how many times people tell me that I'm special, no, I don't. And it's like, this is being used to manipulate and even threaten him, right? Because he's basically being told, like, you are replaceable. Not only are you replaceable, I am grooming your replacement right now. Mm-hmm. He talks so differently to Luke than he does to Percy. I know. The dialogue here, the, the shift when he looks to Percy, too. Especially the line, give me reason to question your worthiness again just pinged to me as like he is just like the gods like luke is trapped in something that is exactly what he's trying to escape right now because this guy like does not care about him he does not care about him (laughs) no and it's so clear but it also feels like end stage like manipulation you know like when the mask kind of comes off and you're in too deep already Mm -hmm. so it's interesting to me also that percy is getting like a window into this which is why it makes me feel like if this is still not intentional because, um, you know, if he's trying to get Percy in the same way he's getting Luke in, showing him the dark side of how you're treating your people that are devoted to you, uh, that's not going to be very convincing. Yeah, that was what I was curious about, because it, he doesn't seem, I mean, in the book, Kronos kind of punishes Percy for spying. Like, after he realizes that Percy is listening, he gives him the robes and throne and smoking laurels vision. Hail the conquering hero. Yeah. Rest in peace. I'll miss her. (laughs) But here, it it almost seems like he doesn't mind that Percy has seen him, even though he says, like, you're you're early, you shouldn't be seeing this yet. Like, it's too early for us to meet. He doesn't react the way you would expect him to, to Percy, knowing now that the voice in the dreams is working with the lightning thief and that he is bad news, or at least he's exactly what Percy is currently on this quest to stop. Because, like, we've been talking about how... The lines from Kronos, as intimidating as he might look, the lines that he's given are still in that like early manipulation phase where like the dreams are what you would expect Luke's early dreams were that like Mm -hmm. roped Luke in. I don't know. I found it. I found it curious (laughs) that Mm -hmm. Kronos wasn't entirely put off by the fact that Percy was hearing him say these things. Yeah, it's also like the first person to third person shift fascinates me, too, Mm because like clearly this is not what Luke's like this is not the vision that Luke is seeing of Kronos because this is a very tailored to Percy character like it's sort of reminiscent also of like the Thalia dream where it's like one of us has got to get out of here right where it's like taking the school anxiety and like (laughs) manifesting it like the headmaster and being in that office is probably probably like the most betrayed Percy has felt in a while as well like that's probably the emotion that's tied to that vision and that moment in Percy and like I'm wondering like is the camera from Percy's perspective it has to be from Percy's perspective because why on earth would Luke be seeing this random headmaster right maybe he is trying to appeal to potentially Percy's sense of righteousness and glory maybe there's something there where he is trying to create competition between them Maybe. Right. Makes Percy feel that, like... You're an insider, and now you're an outsider again situation. Yeah, but also being like, do you feel special, Lightning Thief? And giving Percy the opportunity to see... Because you know what? This is actually a manipulation tactic, because it's it's the golden child, garbage child of it all, right? Like, I think there's something for... It's called uh, triangulation, where it's like, oh, I'm going to berate one child and uplift the other child. Mm-hmm. And it feels kind of like maybe that's what's going on, where he's like, I'm going to berate the lightning thief in front of Percy, show Percy this kid has failed, tell Percy he's special, tell him that he's the one I really want to be doing this, and that's going to make him feel special and him want to do this. Unbeknownst to him, though, Percy doesn't want to be special. Right. Like, he might be pulling out all of the tricks they used for Luke that worked yeah. for Luke, mm-hmm. but aren't going to work for Percy. In the same yeah. way that Luke will do... Uh, I think we talked about it in Sea of Monsters, where he'd... Mm-hmm. Like, you can yeah, have... you can have power, fame... Whatever you want. 
Yeah, I think it's that thing where sometimes what a villain or what a character thinks another character wants can be a really good tool to show like what they want because they assume people want what they want. And I think here we're seeing that. We're, we're getting a bit of a window into like the way they're doing. And as you kind of pointed out last episode, this is the what, what most demigods are expected to want. It's the same mistake that Luke made in episode two when he was saying that uh, Percy would love Capture the Flag because it was, what did he describe it as? All out war, all the glory to the victors, describing it as if like that's something that Percy really wants. <laughs> I also do want to flag the line, not time for us to meet quite yet, uh, which means that there is a determined time that he believes that they should meet. Only time I can think of uh, is in the pit. <laughs> As in mm -hmm. Tartarus is where they were meant to meet. Not to fall into my many conspiracies again. <laughs> but there was another step there. <laughs> and it was to hold that elevator button as we determined last time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I will always I will always be wondering. <laughs> I will always be wondering what the original plan was. Um, do you want to hear some funny analysis that I did not offer in episode one, but is relevant again? So I'll offer it. <laughs> Uh-huh. When I realized that Rick was one of the three people who were punishing Percy, I was like, this means something. <laughs> I was like, trios, you know, we have Rick here, the, the, the storyteller. We have Chiron on the other side, the Percy's mentor. And then we have the headmaster. Um, and in a way, is this not just the three fates? <laughs> With Rick as the creator, as birth. Chiron as the guide, guiding the thread along, measuring it, with the headmaster as someone with absolute power who will end your experience if he chooses to. Is this not the three fates in the room punishing Percy? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, so the headmaster is Atropos. In many ways, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So Percy wakes up to Annabeth and Grover attempting to Iris message Chiron. Yeah, and again, I feel like this is one of the things where I think it's kind of similar to what well, all the storms and stuff that's happening at the in the first two episodes, where we hear Luke being like, "Oh man, everyone thinks we're going to war; they're taking sides," but like we haven't really seen any of that happening. Yeah, I was like, "Are you lying to me right now, Luke?" Yeah, <laughs> is there even a war brewing at camp? Is anyone taking sides right now? <laughs> My other question is, like, they called the big house, right? So Luke theoretically also just woke up from this dream. So what's, go what's going on there? Yeah, I was like, why are you in Chiron's office immediately after having this dream, Luke? <laughs> Curious what he was doing in Chiron's office and what Chiron was doing not in Chiron's office. Maybe he is telling the truth. Maybe he's not lying to me right now. But can you ever trust him? He is prepared for this confrontation, though, and this conversation. <laughs> this conversation was so funny to me because <laughs> they say... We know who stole the bolt. And Luke's like, how do you know? In like the funniest, least <laughs> suspicious way possible for sure. <laughs> but it was it was so funny to me because that's just not the natural question that you ask. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, you'd be like, who? Like I've watched so many of those like, you know, the interrogation room analysis videos where it's like a detective and like a, an accused killer or something. And it's them sitting there for hours. No. The like voiceover guy points watching? out all of the hints that they're guilty. <laughs> Are you preparing for something? <laughs> I need to be prepared just in case I end up in an interrogation room and for some reason forget to ask for a lawyer. That's what all of them do. They all just sit there and say things instead of asking for a lawyer. Anyway, I went through a phase where I watched a lot of those videos and I can just feel the voiceover guy like pausing the video and being like, Luke has already given himself away to the detective. And this would never be the first question out of an innocent person's mouth. <laughs> because it wouldn't be. Yeah, that is a good point. How do you know? That's like the third question you ask. Anyway, say what you were going to say about this scene. Well, that's what I mean. Like, the acting. I'm like, I was watching him like a hawk because I'm like, I've seen Charlie do some some good acting. Some good acting in, in, in these episodes. So I was curious how he was going to play it in this scene. And I thought it was interesting that he plays it so nonchalant. Mm -hmm. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, it makes me think if he's aware that Percy saw this dream, that makes a lot of sense to me because he is prepared for it. Like if he just had this dream, woke up and was like, oh shit, 
they just figured it out. Like, I can imagine his takeaway being like, oh my god, if someone eavesdropped on my dream, maybe I've been given away. Maybe they figured out it's me. So I can see maybe that's why he's in Chiron's office. Maybe he's running to do some damage control. <laughs> or, or he's expecting Percy to wake up and immediately call Chiron. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Percy tells Luke that Chiron has to go arrest Clarice, which is just a funny sentence. Yeah. I was like, can he do that? But this is a real question is how do they punish people at Camp Half-Blood? They lose dessert privileges. Like, is that it? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Because we know at like Camp Jupiter, you get executed for this kind of thing. I know. <laughs> and so... Probably do it the old Roman way too, where they put you in a sack with a bunch of stuff and toss you in the Tiber. <laughs> <laughs> but like at Camp, at camp Half-Blood, is there like a... What happens if you get arrested? Is there like a camp jail? Like, do they just lock you in Chiron's office? Maybe they've never encountered this before. Well, usually when someone does something kind of wrong at camp, they just run off into the forest and disappear. <laughs> <laughs> From what so we've, we've never seen. had this problem before. They all just run away. They all just run off into the forest. Every single one of them. <laughs> That's true. Luke runs off. Nico runs off. Everyone runs mm-hmm. off. Quintus runs off. Everyone just runs off. <laughs> My other note on this, obviously, is it's at the it's the end. Right. So Luke Luke accuses them of being an old married couple. I don't know if I didn't love this line because I was like, how earned? Like they don't they just had one argument. Like and I don't, it wasn't even they weren't even fighting. They weren't even arguing. They were just clarifying for each other. <laughs> Luke's a person about truther. But Luke saw it. Luke could see right through them, which is funny because <laughs> this is a long slow burn, and the fact that everyone around them is already like something is happening here. <laughs> think that's canon though mm-hmm. starting even in like i mean especially in titan's curse but i think starting even in sea of monsters everyone's like oh they're they're all going off alone together which does track for camp like you can like blink in the in someone's general direction at camp and people are like oh, they're dating maybe luke has never seen annabeth have a friendly argument with someone <laughs> only a true argument so a friendly back and forth like this where they're arguing but like with a little bit of a smile on their face that's why he's like, hang on a second, because he's known Annabeth for basically her whole life, and he's never seen this before. Maybe that's why he says it. Yeah, that makes sense, because given the relationship between him, her, and Thalia that was presented, it makes sense to me that, like, she would have been the kid, so she wouldn't have been, like, arguing in earnest with people. They would have been like, all right, Annabeth, and she'd be like, I don't want to go, and they'd be like, okay, you young child, let's keep it moving. <laughs> Like, that's the kind of argument I can envision, where they just see her as being, like, so much younger. Wait, she's not arguing with any of them like an old married couple, because they are much no. older than her. Yeah, exactly. They're the old gay married couple. <laughs> but then Percy goes to ask Luke for advice about meeting his dad in the Lotus Hotel, but Annabeth immediately cuts off the call and says, you can't ask Luke about his dad. And when Percy says, well, now I certainly can't, she says... Uh, basically, if if you tell him that we're going to see Hermes, he's going to try to talk us out of it. I found this really interesting because I was like, why is she so afraid of him trying to talk them out of it? Because it's not like he can actually do anything about it. So it made me think about like Annabeth and Luke's relationship where like how ex- like how much influence does he have over her? It seems like she's kind of instinctively a little afraid of his influence over her. Like, she's afraid that he will talk them out of doing this thing that's the next step in their quest that they don't have an alternative for. And, like, it's not like he can fly out there and do anything. Like, there's no consequences. Yeah. So it made me wonder, like, why she's afraid of that. Especially considering what we find out later, which is what she knows about Luke's relationship with Hermes. Um, then we have a great scene with Arian, who is once again killing the game. They're closing in on Vegas. And um, there's this great little exchange where Grover comes up and is like, all right, so I have some ideas. And Annabeth is just like immediately, yes, we'll free the, yes, yes, we will help free the animals. Mm-hmm. Like without him even saying it, which I love this little moment to show like how well they know each other. But I was also thinking about it in terms of how perceptive Annabeth is to other people's desire, like other people's wants. Because it kind of reminded me also of the moment last episode where Percy's like, okay, I'm going to go sacrifice myself on the throne. I just want to ask you one thing. And she immediately says, yes, I'll save your mom. Like, she is just so, like, mm-hmm. tu- she is so attuned to what other people are, like, motivated by and what they really want to happen that to her it's like, yeah, you don't even t- need to ask. I already know exactly what you're going to ask me to do. 
She, she, I, I can see that though, just in terms of like her as a strategist. I feel like being that attuned to what other people's driving desires are is important. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of like, again, like how she knew Clarice was going to go right for Percy and only care about like, you know, humiliating Percy during Capture the Flag. Like, I think that is part of what we've seen in her work as a strategist. So she's very good at taking people's desires and, if necessary, weaponizing them against them. So we have a, sim- a moment similar to Medusa where they're like, where's the Lotus Hotel? And Annabeth's like, I don't know. How about the building with the giant lotus on it? Levitating by Dua Lipa starts playing. Yeah, yeah. We have to have our iconic. I love that they were like, guys, we need an iconic current pop hit. It needs to be a thing. You know, I was thinking, I think there is... I, I enjoy the ominous energy of Poker Face, <laughs> but levitating, you know, levitating doesn't have that sonically, but lyrically, mm. lines like, we fell into a rhythm where the music don't stop for life. I mean. Mm. That's very Lotus. They've been thinking a lot about the lyrics of the songs they've been mm. choosing, like the Olivia Rodrigo one at the beginning and like, what is love? You know, Poker Face was only relevant because it was Poker Face. <laughs> yeah. It's like, we're in a casino. We are going to play Poker Face. But this one, there are, la- there are layers to this one. <laughs> mm. It is interesting to have a modern pop song play in a place where so many people are out of, out of touch, out of time. Though. I know. Uh, if you're in the Lotus Hotel for a long time, do you notice the music change around you? Like, does the music change around you? Do different people hear different eras of music? Like, is this something that we hear as we enter the casino, but other people are hearing music from their own age? But that's also clearly not the case because they hear a song from, like, the 80s later on. Interesting. And, like, also, like, the people that have been there since, like, the 20s, for example, they've, like, gotten the full evolution. So I think they're just, it's sort of like a frog in boiling water, you know? If you start it off slow, yeah, they'll be like, this jazz sounds a little different. And then they'll be like, oh, this this new this new jazz also sounds a little... They had some new instruments in there? Didn't realize you could do that with a trumpet. <laughs> like, you won't notice because it won't be like they're playing, like, a jazz standard that would be, like, your pop music. And then, like, all of a sudden you're hearing Dua Lipa. It, you know, you've had time. But in your mind, have you? In your mind, it's only been a couple days and all of a sudden Dua Lipa is playing. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I went and I read The Lotus Eaters part of the Odyssey because I was curious. And it shocked me because of how short it is. It's like a paragraph because in the Odyssey at this point, what's happening is Odysseus is telling his to- his tale, telling the story. But the Lotus Eaters, basically, they show up on the island. A couple of his men go off and are like, dude, this lotus plant, sick. Odysseus figures out pretty quickly that the lotus plant makes you forget your desire to go home it makes you just want to like chill out forever like not do anything just lie around and so he rounds up the men that have eaten the lotus flower locks them in the bottom of the ship and sails off so that that's what happens in the odyssey like the amount of time i took to explain this is the exact amount of time and screen time it has in the odyssey which surprised me because i feel like it's one of the most iconic odyssey things like there's something about it i think that has a hold on our collective psyche And I think it's because it does, A, it's one of the more, um, it's one of the more magical encounters. And this doesn't come up in this part of the Odyssey, but it does come up with Circe. It's a specific form of the Greek word for drugs, essentially, which is where we get our word pharmacy from. Pharmakos, I think. And if you've read Circe by Madeline Miller, she actually, there's a bit about it in some of the opening chapters, where there does appear to be some kind of ancient greek fear of drugs and like even the gods are like afraid of drugs because they're afraid of like anything that alters you like alters your body like there's a little there's a lot of that kind of baked into the ancient greek psyche which i think is really interesting and i think this is why this has remained so iconic because these drugs are make they, they're drugs that make you forget yourself and again i think circe by madeline miller the opening chapter is actually does an interesting job exploring this so book wreck but yeah like it's that existential fear also like as an ancient greek person of not wanting to come home is i think the other thing where it's like like you don't plan to not want to come home and yet for some people that is what happens and i think what part of what sticks is it's not even like a horrible fate it's like there's no obvious reason to not eat the flowers (laughs) because they make you happy so why does that make that make us afraid i think i mean i see a little bit of this theme or that fear in this episode too because i i mean i'll get into what i kind of thought like one of the major themes of this 
episode was that's sort mm. of connected later on, I guess. But that fear of not wanting to go home. I mean, Hermes doesn't want to go home. Home as in, like, Luke's house. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think I'll develop... I'll, I'll elaborate on that kind of close to the end of the episode. I was thinking about this also as to, like, why is Hermes posted up here? Like, why does this make... Because it does make sense to me. So I was trying to figure out why it makes sense to me. I figured god of gamblers but also he is surrounded by travelers here and people who in their minds are still on their way somewhere probably um so he'll have somewhere that they're going after this and so he's surrounded himself by travelers who are kind of protected here even if they're in danger of um, everyone outside of the casino dying and them losing whatever life that they had outside of it all of these people are in his sort of domain yeah and i do think because he has this line where he says i exist beyond time and space kid why do you think they put me in charge of delivering the mail great line but then it made me think too because the way he says it because he's like that's why they put me in charge of delivering the mail so there's a part of me that's like do you have are you unconstrained in time and space more than the rest of the gods yeah i was thinking about that a lot because he's also the only one who we see like actually use his powers to this point transporting them various places or like touching Percy's hand and him having a vision later on Mm. we're getting ahead of ourselves but it's he just immediately feels more powerful because he's showing off his power and in a way that the other gods that we've met like Mr. D hasn't Ares doesn't you know Hephaestus just like blows his little whistle you know he needs a tool and yet also I think Hermes looks the most human like he's just in like a hoodie I was about to say, I've, I feel like there's something to say about the fact that he's surrounded himself by humans. Like, he's surrounded all the time by humans. He lives down here in his little sweatshirt. That's another interesting thing about Hermes in this scene, is in a scene in which everybody looks out of time, I think he looks out of place because he does look so casual so compared to everyone in the casino who's, like, dressed mm-hmm. up, like, to go to the casino. And also, so modern. Yeah. We'll, we'll discuss him at length, I think. <laughs> When we actually see him. Yeah. Okay, so then we get a few... Should we talk about Grover and then May? Yeah, I wonder if we don't go back and forth here and just talk about yeah, that's what Grover's I'm direction and then... Yeah. Okay, so they split up to look for Hermes. Annabeth and Percy go one way. They very much Daphne and Fred it. Grover <laughs> goes the other way. And he sees another satyr. And he recognizes him and he goes up to him. We find out that this satyr is named Augustus, and he apparently was very important to Grover's uncle Ferdinand, who we saw frozen in Medusa's lair. And so Grover it, thinks it's really important to tell him what happened to Uncle Ferdinand and yeah. to express his appreciation. Grover's family. I'm very curious about this. He, you know, he says, You were really important to my family, and, you know, references Uncle Ferdinand. And then we've also got Helena in episode two. And I just find it a good kind of counterpoint to the gods as a family. Like, technically, they're all still part of the same family, but Grover is, like, really close with these people. And I'm curious to learn more. I'm always curious to learn more. Mm -hmm. I wonder if season two is, like, the opportunity to do it. You know, we have still no official renewal, but we obviously are going to want Grover screen time. So getting some Grover flashbacks might be fun. Oh, Grover flashbacks. I don't know. Like, what else is he doing while he's weaving? I mean, finding clues that were left by past family members is where I went. You know, like, finding the other people who made it here, because we know a lot of people made it there. Mm. Like, finding hints of them along the way. Percy and Annabeth finding hints of them along the way, because they all took the same journey. You know? That's that's where my mind went. (laughs) Yeah, it is interesting how much... Because I... I, I... He really, like, Uncle Ferdinand's, like, the only piece of Grover's family we get in the books. And he, like, barely talks about having a family. One thing that I found really interesting about this exchange is uh, when Augustus says to Grover, I found him. So when I first heard this, I was, like, wild. And then I was, like, well, is it, like, in the book where there's, like, you know, a video game or something? And then he said, actually, come with me. I need someone to help get through to him. And I was, like... Huh. Why would you say that if it's a video game? And then I was thinking about the scene with Pan in the end battle of the labyrinth. And then I had a wild conspiracy theory thought, which is what if Augustus did find Pan? 
Like, what if he found him in the labyrinth? Because I would be willing to bet money there's an entrance to the labyrinth in the Lotus Hotel and Casino. <laughs> like, what if he did find him? Couldn't, like, convince him to come out. And But he's, like, forgotten that whole part. He just has this, like, really... He, like, remembers one of the strongest aspects of himself, which is, like, the search for Pan and that. But he, like, has kind of chosen to come in and forget. Just be like, well, it didn't work. <laughs> this is my conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. It also could be a very cool reveal later on of, like, how close Grover was to finding Pan. <laughs> but yeah. then there was a bunch of other stuff going on, so he didn't. I like I, I like that conspiracy theory. I had another one that I was developing, but that one might be more interesting. <laughs> I don't know how I'd feel about him actually meeting him and not being able to convince him, because that's just exactly what Grover does <laughs> in book four. But I think that was the whole thing, though, is, like, Grover is supposed to be the one to let him go, and I wonder if this other satyr, like, you know, he's the one, not because he finds him, but because he's the one who's supposed to, like, let him go and lead everyone in letting him go. Like, he's supposed to, like, take up a new mantle. So I wonder if, like, all a bunch of these satyrs, it's, it's sort of like the Percy thing as well, where I feel like there's all these satyrs that are going for the glory of finding Pan, but, like, what Pan does not want to be found and brought back, he is not a trophy. So he's instead you know, waiting on the person that's not going to take him as a trophy, but rather who's going to actually listen to him. Hmm. I like the theory that there's an, an entrance to the labyrinth here. I, I assumed that it was the VR machine that was drawing them to it because, hmm. you know, they made it all the way to the VR machine and then Augustus immediately kind of forgot what they were doing because he had made it to where he was trying to go. And then Grover uses the VR to do who knows what, who knows what game he was playing. It looked kind of like maybe he was, like, climbing something in VR. But then he says that he was looking for Pan and that he felt like he was so close and he felt that he was destined to do this while he was in VR. I just kind of assumed that, like, whatever game they're playing, it must have ties to Pan. Like, either it's, like... Donkey Kong? It's Donkey Kong is what I'm thinking. <laughs> But it must be some kind of virtual, like, recreation of the wild. Like, it really convinces you that you're there, that you can see what the world might be like when there's no humans there. Because, like, the game he plays in the book is, like, yeah, hunter, reverse hunting. deer yeah, hunter reverse where hunting. he shoots yeah. people. <laughs> but it's, like, a similar premise, maybe, the VR, is that it's it's sort of the world if the humans hadn't destroyed it, if we still mm -hmm. had control over it. And... He feels when he looks at it that like he can do this. Like this is this is as mm. close as he can get in a way to seeing Pan and like to seeing the wild as it was under Pan and like that's why it, you feel drawn to it or why he feels drawn to it is that like this is as close as you can get to Pan. But anyway, that was kind of how I understood it was that like there's something in this game that is like mythological, like belongs to their world. Or it's just a game where you, it's kind of like Minecraft, like Grover was just playing Minecraft, but it was such a like beautiful, <laughs> <laughs> like un untouched world. Yeah, I think that's an elephant from the books also that I really enjoy is it's not just like the fruit. Like honestly, it's not the food in the books. It's like the, all the games, like all the cool stuff to do. Like there's just so much going on. Like it never felt like it was the food. It was just mm -hmm. like the mo a full modernization of that which i think is really cool okay yeah let's let's talk about um the hermes stuff so over on the other side of the casino presumably they might be in the same part of the casino actually it's it's massive they're, they're somewhere percy and annabeth are also looking for hermes percy asks annabeth why she thinks she specifically is the one who needs to speak to hermes and annabeth tells percy about meeting may castellan mm -hmm. she says She's a seer, a human who can see through the mist. Sometimes they see things that mess them up. Scary things, stuff that hasn't happened yet, stuff they know is going to happen. The fact that we're moving this information up... I know. Like, we, we are now understanding Luke's backstory long before we ever do in the book. And mm -hmm. I'm very curious how this is going to impact Luke and Percy's relationship or the way that Percy sees Luke. Because in the book, Percy, like, really kind of hated Luke for what he did. And mm -hmm. learning this and understanding where Luke was coming from was kind of the key to him finally seeing Luke's side and realizing the value in his and Annabeth's relationship, which was why he was able to make the choice he did in the end. 
like part of me is just curious how Percy's going to react to the betrayal at the end. Um, mm. Because book Percy, it doesn't matter how much of your story that he knows. You betray him, you're you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> like that's just kind of part of how his devotion and loyalty manifests. Like I'm not, I'm just not getting that same like energy off of Percy. Like, Book Percy would have never forgiven Grover for what he did in the beginning of the show. Or at least it would have taken him, like, a while. Which it does take yeah. him a, a, a bit to actually trust. You know, it took him two episodes. But it, will it like, colors his perception of you for a very long time. The Percy in the show doesn't feel as, like, quick to judgment, I guess. But, I mean... You try and kill him out in the forest. I can't imagine that he has a good reaction to that. I can't imagine him just being like, but his mom. <laughs> so I'm just curious how this information plays into the way that Percy looks at Luke from now on. Because it's just not, it wasn't at all part of how he was able to look at Luke for like four books before. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I think it does set Luke up as a foil for Percy a lot more. Here we're getting a lot on Luke's relationship with his dad. In all of the ways that might look similar to Percy's relationship with Poseidon. And we're getting a lot of Luke's anger. And we're also getting, like, the justification for the anger of, like, you know, blaming Hermes for what happened to his mom. Like, that feels very, like, Percy being able to, like, you know, kind of blaming Poseidon for ignoring his mom. And, like, maybe even being the reason why she's not here anymore. And also, I don't think we've gotten this information yet, but... I can see how in later seasons, the fact that Sally is also a seer can, like, really be built up as well. Yeah. Like, I can see how we're going to get that set up in a way where you really see the parallels between the two mothers and how different their lives have ended up due to, like, basically random circumstance. Mm-hmm. I did think that Hermes will do anything to win him back line was really interesting. Because I'm wondering how she saw that, what she saw that made her feel like that. Yeah, because, like, from what we know... This seems to be that one scene where they stopped on their way to get supplies because I guess they were in Connecticut. They were being chased by monsters. Everything was was looking dark enough that Luke thought, okay, I have to go home. And then he met Hermes for the first time in his life. And so that's where that argument comes from. He's been on the run for however many years and he's just meeting his dad for the first time. But in the show, Hermes says that was the last time that they met rather than the only time that they met. And so the argument, I imagine, comes from a far more personal place from experiences with him love that we're theorizing about how the scene in season five is going to happen and that we're going to have no answers for like 10 years <laughs> no <laughs> i do feel like this series because it has such much so much more of a focus on it being like a family story like we've talked a lot about how humanizing the gods has been something we've seen a lot so far in the show so, and, like, hearing Annabeth's account of this argument, like, he told you he hated you and stuff. Like, that also feels much more like a teenager-parent relationship as opposed to, like, a god-mortal relationship. So, mm. it makes me also wonder if, like, that's the direction the show really is going to take in terms of the gods' relationships with their kids. Yeah, especially because this specific relationship, like, Luke and Hermes, based on what Hermes says later on... That dynamic was was different. Like, Hermes actually went down and tried to fix things at one point. Clearly too late, but at one point did. Yeah, and I think you also see it in the way Hermes' demeanor shifts in when, when we see him, as soon as they bring up Luke. Yeah, like, they have a real relationship. Like, they have... Yeah. There is something... Like, this isn't just a god being like, oh yeah, my kid. This is, like, Ares. Especially because Hermes has so many kids and has probably wronged most of them. <laughs> <laughs> But I can't imagine him having that reaction to, like, I don't know, Connor and Travis. <laughs> or even, of like, who knows why Chris is helping Luke out. But, mm. you know, would he even have a really, like, would he even have a reaction like that if you brought up Chris? Does he even remember Chris? Like, Luke, Luke and Hermes, there is something very specific happening there. This is also where Percy tells Annabeth about his dreams. And I did just want to flag the way he describes them because he uses her talking about May's visions being at first weird and then scary to mm -hmm. talk about his dreams which I thought was an interesting link to draw yeah it reminded me of how in the first episode he felt like he might be losing his mind seeing the things that he was seeing and that he might have related himself to May because you know when he was little he was seeing 
the Pegasus, and then as he got older, he started to see scarier and scarier monsters. So he probably in his head was like, that's happened to me. Yeah. So Annabeth and Percy shows up. He seems very affable, but as soon as they bring up Luke, his entire demeanor changes. Mm -hmm. And he takes him aside. And while he was being kind of like genial and funny at first, like now he's just not. No, 100% serious. The other part of this conversation, and this is my this is my other like Hades Town ping a little bit, was um, when they're talking about the underworld. When he's talking about like I bring people into the underworld, do you know what happens every single time? And I I really love the way that's brought up in the show because this is a point that is made, and this is something I think even like Annabeth says to Percy in the book. I think they're talking about, it and they're like nobody comes back out. Of the underworld. No, at least at least nobody comes back out with the person they meant to bring back. That being said, the one person who did make it out of the underworld relatively fine is sitting in the background of this shot. <laughs> because it's Hercules, obviously. He's got a bunch of artifacts on the wall. And you better bet I looked at what all of those were and tried to find Easter eggs. I was looking at the bus and I was like, that looks like Hercules. And so I, I looked up bust of Hercules. Because the thing about Greece is, ancient Greece, they don't do a lot of busts. That's more of a Roman thing. And it looks like that that is a bust done in the style of a famous uh, statue of Hercules. That um, is called the Farnese Hercules. A few interesting things about this statue. Uh, besides the fact that it's Hercules, the one person who did make it out of the underworld, having achieved his goals. The other interesting one being that this particular statue of Hercules has him with his club and his Nemean lion skin, but also with the apples from the Garden of the Hesperides. Hmm. And there's a second bust that's elsewhere on the shelf that looks like it's of a young boy. And I was like, hmm, why, why do you have a bust of a guy with the apples from the Hesperides and also a young boy, Hermes? Especially because the other things that are there, there's a great, uh, my favorite Minoan vase is on the shelf. Some with the octopus on it. I love it. It's a small one. There's also a bunch of just like random pithoi from the looks of it. These all look, they're very Luke-coded to me. <laughs> mm, they're telling a story when you put them all together. <laughs> yeah, they're telling a story to me. They're telling me that this is a man that's keeping reminders of his son. Or, and, and, But again, it's like the sort of which came first situation too, where it's like, did he give Luke the quest for the golden apples because he likes Hercules? Because for him, and like maybe it's also tied to this fact that Hercules is the only person that's come out of the underworld alive. I do remember in the book that uh, Hermes is a big fan of Hercules, the TV show, though. Yes, he is a Hercules guy. <laughs> and the, the the next line I have written down is when Hermes says, I was warned to stay away from Luke and his mother, warned that no matter how much I tried to help, I would just make things worse. And I went anyway. And it wasn't just awful for Luke, it was awful for all of us. Do you know what that feels like to be so close to someone you love, knowing neither of you has any choice but to keep hurting each other? I feel like there's a lot going on here. <laughs> yeah. I So my first thought practically was I was trying to, I wanted to know the timeline on this. Because Percy is presumably alive when Poseidon gives Hermes this advice. That was what I was thinking about, was I was like, when did Poseidon tell Hermes this? How old was Percy? What did something happen that made him? If we're going off book timeline, right, he runs away when he's, what, nine? So it's yeah. presumably like when he's nine, let's just say. And, like, then depending on how long Hermes was trying to make things work, I can, I, I think the way I'm interpreting this is, like, Percy was at the oldest, like, two. So it makes sense to me if this is just Poseidon's, like, Poseidon has had a good, long, hard think about all of this stuff. Presumably maybe having watched what happened to, like, Nico and Bianca's mom. And he decides, like, this is his philosophy. This is the way he's going to operate. And he gives Hermes this advice. Like, that to me is what makes the most sense, because I don't think we're given in the books, we might be given the show, but I don't think we're given in the books a particular event that, like, would have prompted, like, we don't, we never hear about Poseidon, like, trying to make it work with Sally, you know? Like, it's pretty clear that he's long gone by the time Percy's actually born. Yeah, so either Poseidon was already watching Percy struggle and was feeling powerless to stop it when Percy was only two, or maybe Luke just ran away when he was older than nine in the show. Which gives me even more excuse to talk about his childhood in Westport, Connecticut later. <laughs> I love how we're connecting Percy and Luke from childhood, though. 
like the the just the idea of talking about them in the same conversation years before they would ever meet mm-hmm. i enjoy that a lot and that percy is kind of why that percy is why hermes was warned away i don't want to call it like fate <laughs> but the fact that they were connected in that way they're a dyad phoebe that's <laughs> I mean, he dreams about him all the time. Yes, they're a force die. <laughs> they're, they're kind of a force die. <laughs> My other note on this line was also the fact that I thought it was really interesting that this comes immediately after he's talking about the underworld, where he's like, do you know what happens? I try to help heroes get into the underworld. Do you know what happens every single time? I'm paraphrasing. And the fact that he's saying that, and then the next topic of conversation, he's like, I've tried to make things work, and I tried to help. And it didn't work. Like this sort of idea of the inevitability of failure when a god interferes in the way, in like the quote unquote natural order of things. So like death or like the mortal world, the mortal life. Uh-huh. <laughs> I found it interesting that these were kind of paralleled in this conversation. Yeah. I, I, uh, where do I even start with this? <laughs> I, I realized this when he says like, I don't get involved anymore. And he like sits back and he says, it's just not worth it. I'm sorry. And Annabeth says, then this was all just a waste of time. I was like, if you don't get involved anymore and you weren't even really going to try here, you weren't even, you were just going to spend this whole conversation pushing them to not move forward. What was, what was the purpose of this? (laughs) Because he's clearly, he brought them in here to waste their time so that the deadline would pass so that they would fail. And then I was thinking about like, you know, you beyond, you, you exist beyond space and time and don't know what your kid did. And it made me think of The Last Olympian with Hermes saying that he's known Luke's story from the beginning. Like he knew how Luke's story was going to go. And so I was just sitting there like, what does Hermes know? Like, did he, has he seen the end of all of this? What does, what does he know of the end of all of this? Because he, I mean, do we think Hermes, like this is, this is just a question. Do we think that Hermes knows that Luke is the lightning thief? I feel like in this version, he does. He has to. And it connects back to what you were saying about, like, Hermes's whole attitude toward all of this stuff. Like, he's very, like, he's defeated in, in everything that he does, where he just, he feels like things are going to fail, so he doesn't even try. And so mm-hmm. if he knows that this is how Luke's story ends, he's just going to sit back and let it happen. Because he, you know, maybe he saw it back in back in the day, and that's why he tried to reach out and tried to fix things, but things only got worse and he knew that, like, this was just going to happen from the beginning and so gave up. Yeah. I think that is a common, like, most Greek tragedy is tragic because everything people try to do to avoid fate is what makes their fates horrible. This is the foundational pillar of, you know, all of their beliefs of how the world works and everything. So I think it's a thing where he lived out his own Greek tragedy and took away, like, oh, yeah, doing stuff is doing things is worse than doing nothing yeah so i would i would love if that's the direction that we're going for here that hermes in trying to stop luke's fate from happening ended up accidentally kind of causing it because hermes has always been just like such a uh hermes is probably one of my favorite gods if not my favorite god in the percy jackson Mm. series because he's just so messy (laughs) Mm. like when he comes out of all this blaming annabeth and like arguing with Annabeth, which also I I enjoyed in this episode, getting to see Annabeth thinking that like, oh, I'm the one who should talk to Hermes because he will like me more than you guys and I know his story. And I was like, Annabeth, in four years, you'll be like, I can't be the one talking to Hermes. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I like, if we can make Hermes' story even messier, good. <laughs> Yeah. It's also interesting to me where he says, like, it isn't fair. None of it is. Like, I was getting a lot of vibes that he was very disillusioned with Olympus too. Like, it seemed like he was feeling a lot of the same feelings, just maybe coming from a different place of, like, the way things work and this being the way things are. Mm -hmm. And it's, like, after this that he talks about Poseidon telling him to stay away too. So, like, it's so interesting to me because it feels like he and Luke are, in a way in the same on the same page with how they feel about the gods right but only one of them is going to do something about it crazy wild (laughs) also i do feel like we need to touch on while we're talking about this conversation something that we talked about when we discussed this episode on the newest olympian 
which was this line that Poseidon told Hermes, the, um, that that's what parenting is line. Mm. On its own, it sounds like a really, a really deep and meaningful line about parenting and how, you know, it, it really is awful watching your child struggle and not being able to help mm. them. But then you like look at it in the actual context that's being said in and you're like, there is a whole other half of parenting that could be happening here, um, which is the part where you aren't powerless to stop it and you can help them. Yeah. What, the part where you turn your kid into a tree. Just kidding. Um... The part where you turn your kid into a tree, you could be doing here. <laughs> It, that could stop a whole lot of problems, actually, if you yeah, just turned your kid into a tree right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this idea of, like, him talking about being powerless as a god, but also, like, it's just... And, like, Poseidon is currently waiting in Santa Monica for yeah. Percy as he says it. Like, the guy who told him that isn't following his own advice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, there are things that they can be doing, he just isn't. Like, that's, that's clearly a, a very solid part of his own like ideology that like he just can't he can't do anything because anything he does is going to cause harm rather than trying to do any good and then like he kind of he doubles down on it saying it is very hard for a god to feel powerless i guess we're all just doing the best we can and like that really somber tone and i was like well poseidon's best seems a bit better than yours actually (laughs) i'm afraid (laughs) i'm afraid someone here isn't sitting in the same place anymore wishing things were better And then the other thing is immediately after delivering that line is the hu- is the second big shift in this episode, which is when he looks at his watch and he's like, also, uh, by the way, I've just willfully wasted all of your time and now I've taken away all of your options and choices to do anything mm-hmm. about anything. I was like, this isn't just your best termies. This is kind of your worst. <laughs> yeah, like he's. It's like he gives his whole monologue about all of this stuff and then reveals that he's the villain, mm-hmm. which just I think it just reinforces exactly what you were saying, which is like, no, he had power to do stuff and he did do stuff. It just wasn't the good stuff. It wasn't the stuff he should have been doing to help people. No. And this kind of this also was part of what reinforced for me that like he knows what Luke is doing mm-hmm. and is just trying to let it happen. Like he's he's not trying to he's almost helping fate go along rather than trying to stop it anymore i wonder if that scene in sea of monsters can even happen anymore i don't know like you can't really be like go save luke after this (laughs) that's a good point that's got to be a completely new scene okay it seems that he and percy have a longer conversation that we are not privy to where he explains some more stuff about like how exactly the lotus hotel and casino works and Percy meets back up with Annabeth, at which point they realize it's nighttime now and it's been like days and they're like almost entirely out of time. At which point Annabeth reveals that she has picked Hermes's pocket. Mm-hmm. And I just wrote down, oh, I bet she learned that from Luke. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> she did. <laughs> Also, I wrote down the audacity, because this is what we've seen her do in the last two episodes alone, which is challenge Ares, mess with Hephaestus' machinery, and pick Hermes' pocket. She is literally just going toe-to-toe with these gods as though she's like, she's like, yeah, I'm going (laughs) to steal from the god of thieves. Yeah, I'm gonna like mess with the machinery of the god of mechanics. Like, oh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna raise a very defiant eyebrow at the god of war. Like, I'm just she's going toe to toe. We love mm-hmm. her for that. This is the hubris. This is the hubris that we've been waiting to see. And the fact is just like he didn't notice. I'm like, girl, <laughs> this is the twelve year old Annabeth also coming to the fore because sometimes we need the reminder that she is in fact twelve years old. She makes many mistakes in that first book, so <laughs> glad to see one. <laughs> so they also find out that apparently the Lotus Hotel and Casino pumps the Lotus gas into the air. I like that as a way to like update the stories, because I, again, it feels like Rick put a lot of effort into updating the mythology to fit our world, so I like that it's sort of taking that extra step, too, to update the mythology in a way where, like, even if you know the stories you're still going to be susceptible to it. Because if you're going to make Percy grow up with these myths, you have to make sure that the myths can still beat him. Yeah. <laughs> and then they realize they have to go find Grover. I love the <laughs> Grover got really old. How long have we been here, <laughs> line? <laughs> they succeed in bringing Grover out. There's so much comedy in the following scene, which I love. I love they're like, we need to give these kids their greatest challenge yet. 
driving a car and I feel seen. I I as well. Because <laughs> <laughs> literally the first time I got my learner's permit, went to a parking lot with my dad and proceeded to accidentally hit the accelerator instead of the brake and do a lot of damage to our car and a fence. <laughs> I also love the detail of Annabeth in the passenger seat critiquing him and then Percy being like, okay, do you want to drive? And she's like, no. <laughs> and again, I feel seen because I have friends that are terrible drivers, but I hate driving so much that I'm willing to risk it. Also love that the, the like only moment that Percy gets right is honking at the correct moment. But also you see it go through his brain where he's like, hey, wait, it exists. This is when you honk. I was like, ah, oh, he's he's very from New York. <laughs> <laughs> I I know, like for me, especially learning how to drive, like using the horn, I'm always like on the fence about whether or not, because you mm-hmm. know I'm polite. Yeah. So I'll just be like, was that a was that enough of an offense to honk? Yeah, that's why I love that Percy just immediately slams. On it. <laughs> <laughs> I do love the couple moments of heart. There's a moment before they get in the car where Grover says really earnestly as though he is starting to come back to himself and like realize what's going on as he's saying, are we late because of me? And again, we have Percy being the one to reassure him yep. repeating by repeating like, it's okay. It's okay. We're going to be okay. Yeah. And it isn't Grover's fault. It's Hermes' fault. Although to be fair, they did have to go back and get him. So they are arguably later. They are later. That's true. Oh, and you know, they probably are late because of him. Just because... She says when when Percy goes down into the water, she says that like the the solstice passed earlier this evening. Like it, it hasn't been that long. Like they kind of mm. just missed it. So they uh, they escape the parking garage. We get a casual supernatural reference. We get a great supernatural reference where the truck hits them <laughs> out of nowhere. But they manage to avoid the truck by being transported immediately to the beach in Santa Monica. And Percy and Annabeth realize that they remembered more because they weren't together, which is really cute. Yeah, this is kind of what I was referencing earlier of like what I felt like this episode was about. I I feel like it's a little bit about the tragedy in losing the people that you love, but they're still alive somewhere, you know, like either because you're Mm. they're forgetting you or because you can't speak to them or you keep missing each other or you've left their lives somehow. And without meaning to or wanting to, you've lost them. Mm. Because of the way that Hermes separated himself entirely. And that, you know, Percy and Annabeth only survived this because they were together. But Grover, because he's alone, starts to forget them. They start to forget Grover. And, like, how sad Mm. it is that everyone in the casino has forgotten everyone in their lives. You know, it's the same thing that happens to all of these satyrs, is that they go off alone and then... The people, all of these people have lost someone who is who they think is still alive out there. That was kind of the, the overarching theme for me of this episode was like how dangerous it is to go alone. No, that's really good. I really like that as a theme. Because it's yeah. also like the, earlier in the episode they say, you know, let's split up. And they're like, I thought we weren't doing that anymore. And then that's mm. what I guess if we're saying that like they would have made it in time if they hadn't lost Grover, you know, if Grover had stuck with them. They still would have found Hermes at the same time, and they wouldn't have forgotten each other. Yeah. Yeah, and I do think that really vibes with the mythological origins of the Lotus Eaters. Because I think that's the thing, is, like, that's the existential fear. It's the existential fear of forgetting yourself, forgetting where you come from, forgetting what you're supposed to be doing, and just staying. Like, and just, like, leaving it all behind. And I do think that is very much tied to, like, the people in your life you love. And that's why that's the essential fear. You're not, like, afraid of losing physical things. You're afraid of the people in your life moving on. And you're afraid of losing time with them. And you're afraid of losing the love you have for them. And I think that's a huge piece of the Odyssey, too. Because, I mean, that's that's what we see a lot, especially in the Penelope storyline. And that's what you see a lot just with Odysseus's relationship with Penelope where she sort of is representative of like his life at home and how hard he fights to like get back to it. I'm also thinking about like with Penelope specifically like how easy it would be for her to move on and for her to forget mm-hmm. Odysseus throughout that whole story because she has people coming to her who are saying you know move on. <laughs> with me. Move yeah on move with on me. with me specifically. <laughs> um, yeah. And that she could very easily have gone the route of leaving him behind and leaving him lost to the war, lost at sea. I think likewise with Odysseus, he's given all of these opportunities 
to forget to leave it all behind where again it's so much easier to do that but no he's he's going home with all that context in mind the fact that they're immediately having percy go to his father like it feels like a homecoming where he's entering this water he's finally going to meet him in person and i think that's why the nereid coming up and meeting him instead and saying like he waited as long as he could like that that's why it feels like it's such a dagger in the heart because they did all of that they stayed together and it's it's just like in the odyssey where it's just like oh no we went through all of that and there's still more to come Mm -hmm. i think it's also this moment where you like the fact that it isn't poseidon there and your faith as an audience member in poseidon is so fragile and it's just Mm -hmm. the messenger again i at least despite knowing the story i at least felt my faith in poseidon shaken because you have to think like will it not just be this forever like what how how long she gives such reassuring words where she's always saying you know it's the same kind of vibe as what he heard in the river where it's like mm-hmm. you're, you're so brave you're you are strong you've made your father proud and it's like will it always be this will it not just be this forever are you ever actually going to meet your father i think there's a moment too where they're like you've completed your quest you did it where it just feels so hollow too and i think it also like pulls up all the stuff of like is that it is that what completing a quest is that's why i think this moment where she gives i think i don't know how this hits if you're not a book reader like if you haven't read the books but she holds out her hand and gives him four pearls because when i saw that i was like because like i think having read the books me as a viewer that was what reinstated like that to me was like the biggest like oh my god he cares like Mm -hmm. thing like, that, to me, did all of the work. It did, every, like, so much work. <laughs> it's funny because I had a, a different reaction to this. Mm-hmm. I didn't think of this as Poseidon at all. I thought of this as her. Mm-hmm. Like, of, of her finally, with a voice of her own, instead of speaking for his father all the time, hearing Percy mm-hmm. say, like, no, I'm going to go do this, and her saying, okay, here, do this, save the world, and then go save your mother. Hmm. Maybe that's the poll. Yeah. I mean, because it just, to me, read as, you know, I've delivered the message from your father and Percy says, no, I don't accept that. That does put a different spin on it. Yeah, because then it's not Poseidon saying, go save Sally. And then what are the Pasali shippers supposed to do with that? <laughs> that he was trying to say, send Percy home. He was trying to say, it's time to go back to Camp Half-Blood. I don't know. I, I feel like interpreting the fourth prose from Poseidon, though, works for me because it's just like we've had our face shaken in him and that's just like... A tangible thing where if that came from him he's listening to percy and supporting him from afar in a way that's actually helpful mm-hmm. yeah i mean i don't feel like i need to have my faith unshaken in poseidon <laughs> i'd love to feel unsure of him for forever yeah but like i feel like the i don't know in the books they want you to be like yeah poseidon's a good dad compared to the rest of the gods yeah and he is, like he is. In the show too, he is a better dad than most of those guys. <laughs> Which is a low bar, man. That's a low bar. But what I mean is that in the in the book it is clear that these pearls come from Poseidon. But here in the show, there is a message he delivers from Poseidon. He refuses it, and then she sees how much of Poseidon is in him and that he's not going to back down from this, and so decides to help him herself. For me, it wasn't, it was still faith in Poseidon's realm and in his power, but for me, it wasn't faith in Poseidon on a personal level. Mm. Like, it wasn't coming from him. It was coming from her. Ambiguous. That probably, that will be the poll. That will be be the poll below here on Spotify. (laughs) (laughs) What bead would you give this episode? I think I want Hermes's watch. Ah. Because I was staring at that watch, too. I was like, is he a watch guy? Like, this is, that's a watch maybe i do hermes's keys because because he has the little like caduceus hanging off mm-hmm. of them and we'll see a lot of that all over may's house when we get mm-hmm. to may so it symbolizes the hermes luke connection in some way <laughs> i also i did write down where are george and martha on his keys apparently <laughs> where are they i miss them It's fine. The scene was too serious to have two talking snakes there. (laughs) (laughs) 
you all for listening to Monster Donut. Next time, we will be talking about episode seven. We're so close to the end. Episode seven, along with a special guest. Thank you to our patrons, RK, Window Wells, Emily Ann Bonnie, Roman Consul, Latino Kaya, Patty BCK, Bethany from Public Works, Sydney Fox, Joke, Reina Avila Ramirez Ariano, Charlie McNeil, Bronte Libo, Chief and Plays, Robert Gamer, Kelsey Baden, Kari, and Layla Hussein. Thank you all. Up on our Patreon right now, we we still have our predictions episode. <laughs> Uh, and I will be posting our spoiler episode soon because I'm actually going to have time to finish editing that probably this week. And we've also got some other cool stuff planned there too. So come check us out. Come hang out. You can find the link to do that either in the description box of this episode or in our link tree, which you can find on all of our social media. We are PJOPod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also share your thoughts about the season so far for us to include in our wrap-up thoughts, questions analyses with us on those social media or at our email which is monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com in our link tree we've also got the link to find merch but you can also just find that at monsterdonut.redbubble.com i kind of want to get both the cleos and nostos shirts actually i do think my my allegiance is a lot more declared in that respect (laughs) so if we have to each wear one right you don't even really have to buy the shirt i don't (laughs) For those who don't know, I literally have the word Kleos tattooed on my body. (laughs) I think that's all for now. Uh, Then we'll see you next time in the underworld. In Krusty's. (laughs) In Procrusty's (laughs) lair. (laughs) It's going to be great. I'm excited. Okay. Bye, everybody. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.